0: Ultimately, what I am working for is for people to have the widest array of choice of access to platforms um, for their own speech, access to information, the most information that they can get to be informed users of these different services. You know, I think, obviously, content moderation plays a huge role in shaping people's experiences online. We need to hold companies accountable for how, for this kind of enormous power that they are using <laughs> to every day to shape who gets to speak, what information is available, and, in fact, the positive things that they do to, to make access to information possible, and to make formation of communities and exchange of ideas online possible.
1: I'm Quinta Jurecic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, August 27th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Emma Lonzo, the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, or CDT. Emma has done a lot of interesting work at CDT, but we wanted to have her on to discuss one issue in particular, the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism or GIFCT. ct You've probably never heard of this consortium, which houses a shared database of content that platforms use to remove terrorism-related material. But Emma makes the case for why it's worth paying attention to, and why she finds it concerning. We also asked Emma about CDT's lawsuit against President Trump over his recent executive order aiming to constrain platforms' leeway to moderate content, which, the CDT is arguing, violates the First Amendment. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 27th. I'm Alonzo on the most important content moderation database you've never heard of. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You've been at the Center for Democracy and Technology, or CDT, for 11 years. So let's start just by you telling us a bit about what the CDT does and what your role is there.
0: Sure, yeah. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. CDT is an advocacy organization uh, with offices in D.C. and Brussels that fights for um, human rights and civil liberties in Internet law and technology, technology policy here in the U.S., in the European Union and around the world. We work on everything from issues of free expression and access to information to uh, commercial data privacy government surveillance, internet architecture and technical standards, open internet issues like net neutrality, competition law, we really try to cover a whole gamut of technology policy issues, but keeping the clear focus in mind of how does this ultimately impact the rights of individuals in today's societies.
2: Awesome. And you tend to focus on freedom of expression issues, is that right?
0: That's right. I'm the director of CDT's Free Expression Project, um, which is kind of the part of CDT that houses all of our work on people's access to information and ability to use the internet to find a space for their voice and their community. Um, So that covers everything from intermediary liability laws and policy, like Section 230 in the US or the e-commerce directive in Europe. Um, It includes fundamental rights protections, including things like legislative analysis and even bringing legal challenges to um, different government actions that have the effect of censoring speech, Um, really trying to make sure that people's fundamental rights are respected in the laws uh, that get passed um, in different countries around the world. And a big chunk of our work also focuses on content moderation, and in particular, kind of direct to corporate advocacy about what content moderation policies and practices are, um, and really pushing for best practices like notification for users, making sure people have the opportunity to appeal when action is taken against their content, and for things like transparency reporting, so that there's in general, more information available about how different sorts of online services are shaping our information environment.
2: So it strikes me that over the 11 years that you've been at the Centre for Democracy and Technology, it's been a very interesting period for democracy and technology, (laughs) and in particular, freedom of expression issues, and especially content moderation of platforms, like how social media platforms decide what can be on their services. And so I'm just curious, what's the biggest change that you've seen in, in the stuff that you work on over the time that you've been working on it?
0: That's a fascinating question. I'm, I feel like there are some really wonky answers, but I mean, the flat out biggest change has just been general public awareness um, and public attention to these issues. When I first started getting interested in this topic, kind of in law school, realizing, oh, there's actually a whole you know, body of work and academic discipline focused around the information society and how laws affect our ability to use the internet to access information and all of that back in the, the mid-aughts. You know, this was a niche field. This was not something that you know you go home for uh holidays and talk to your family and extended family about what you're doing and they have any clue what you're talking about. And now at Thanksgiving dinner, I'm the one who has to say, okay, folks, can we please stop talking about hate speech on the internet? Because I'd actually like to take a break from my job <laughs> and not have to continue this conversation for the entirety of family dinner. So so yeah, that's a, a little bit of a, a lighthearted answer to a very serious question, but the, I think the, the level of awareness of people in general about issues like content moderation or the fact that there are both companies and governments making decisions that affect what information you see and how that information shapes you and your opinions and other people and their opinions um, is so much higher now than it was you know, 10, 11 years ago when I was getting started.
2: Yeah, that's, that's definitely absolutely true. But it's a great segue to one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that we wanted to have you on today, um, which was to talk about something that doesn't get a lot of attention and that you and I were in a group conversation a couple of weeks ago um, trying to work out how can we get more people to pay attention to something called the GIF-CT or the Global Internet <laughs> Forum to Counter Terrorism. And it's this thing with like such a boring name. And you know, if I was cynical, I would suggest that it's probably boringly named precisely so that it doesn't attract too much attention. But of course, I'm I'm not at all cynical. So let's start with the very basics um, for our listeners who aren't familiar, which probably is most of them because it doesn't mm-hmm. get much attention. What is the GIF-CT?
0: Right. So the, the GIF-CT, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, started out as an industry led initiative that is sort of was sort of an launched in summer of 2017 as a a demonstration that some of the leading internet companies, specifically Microsoft, Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter, were taking very seriously the issue of terrorist abuse of their services, uh, and were working together to try to find ways to combat terrorist abuse of their services, uh, do things like share information, including hashes of content, which we can get into later, you know, share information about content to block, but also do things like knowledge sharing with smaller companies, um, smaller online services who don't have the same resources as those very big companies to try to combat the fact that different terrorist organizations were, you know, using their services to post propaganda, to try to engage in recruitment and to otherwise kind of further the cause of terrorist activity. So it was launched in the midst of a lot of focus on how are different terrorist groups using the internet, Um, how are they trying to use these different services for all of these different kinds of recruitment and um, propaganda activities, and I think was, was launched very much in anticipation of a lot of potential regulation facing these same companies about exactly those same topics.
1: So you wrote a, an op-ed about this titled uh, Platforms Want Centralized Censorship That Should Scare You. So why should the GIF-CT scare our listeners? Right. Well, so to
0: immediately start splitting hairs, I think there are versions of the GIF-CT that would be less frightening to uh, to people. But the concept of centralizing censorship online should scare people whatever sort of uh, name or or structure it takes. What I was trying to get at in that op-ed is this idea that if you roll, uh, you know, roll history back to the 1990s and kind of the, the era of Internet optimism or Internet utopianism about just what this amazing technology was going to mean for humankind, a lot of it focused around the fact that this was decentralized. There were no necessary gatekeepers to being able to use this medium to communicate. Uh, It was very open. Anybody could kind of attach a computer, a device to the network, and basically immediately have the opportunity to start sharing information without getting anybody's permission first. That decentralization and openness and no gatekeepers is really kind of inherent in how the internet can be a, a genuinely different medium for communication than things like broadcast or print publishing, where typically because of how resources are allocated and things like scarcity of spectrum or just scarcity of being able to run a printing press, uh, you need to get some sort of permission or buy-in from somebody else before your speech can make it out to an audience. Um, So decentralization, really important in thinking about kind of some of the ways that the internet supports freedom of expression. But it also makes dealing with things like illegal content or just content that lots of people want to see taken out of the network really, really hard. If the system is entirely decentralized, there's no one place to go to say, we found a problem and you, the centralized node, are responsible to fix it. Without gatekeepers, there's nobody to stop at the gate, the people trying to purvey uh, illegal information or do things like terrorist recruitment. So the trends that we're seeing towards sort of re-centralizing some areas of content governance online, I think is a, a reaction to that, a sense that the technical features of the internet that can make it so um, supportive of diversity of opinions, uh, you know, access to enormous amounts of information also can make it really hard to control genuinely harmful or illegal information. And so if you centralize different points of censorship, if you bring back together the sense that you know, for example, there will be a blacklist of content that cannot appear on any of these websites, that starts looking more like a system that's controllable, a system where you could say, well, we may not have gotten, for example, this terrorist propaganda video off of the entire internet, but we know it's not going to show up on, you know, this half dozen or two dozen of the major platforms out there. Um, And in a way, we have controlled the spread of that. thats uh, I'm kind of phrasing this in the light most favorable to like why there are these forces towards centralization and trying to, to solve these problems of uncontrollable, you know, quote unquote, bad information. But of course, when that system exists, it also creates the potential for using exactly that same centralized control to make sure lots of different kinds of information can't find a home on the web, that lots of different kinds of information could be actually sort of blacklisted off of multiple sites without and necessarily any recourse for the people who were trying to speak it or express it.
1: Right. So let's dig into that a little bit more. I mean if if you if we're talking about the idea of quote unquote terrorism online and you say to me, you know, there's there's this thing called the GIFCT, CT. It's platforms are coordinating, they're trying to take terrorist content off the web. I might say, like, that sounds great, <laughs> right? <laughs> of course, we don't want that on there, right? So so why isn't terrorism something that everyone can agree should just not be on social media platforms? Like, what, what about this raises questions for you?
0: Right. So one of the big challenges in all of this, in this whole concept, is defining what counts as, quote unquote, terrorist content. I tend to talk about terrorist propaganda or content that is trying to incite terrorist acts, because those are are more specific and have somewhat more basis in um, different legal systems, sort of restriction of this content. But honestly, the way this gets talked about in a lot of policy circles around this by governments and companies is in this this term TVEC or terrorist and violent extremist content, which is an extremely broad phrase that doesn't have a good definition. Um, There is not one universally agreed on definition of what amounts to terrorism or who is a terrorist, who belongs to, what are the terrorist organizations out there and, and who belongs to them. There are a variety of different lists that different governments and intergovernmental organizations have put together about, you know, this is who we designate as terrorists, but there's a lot of controversy over those lists, over who is included and who is excluded. And there's not kind of a sense that, yes, there's one group of people or organizations or ways of defining specific content that is universally agreed to always be unacceptable. And especially to always be unacceptable in every potential context, so a lot of the kind of content that we might think about when we think about terrorist and violent extremist content, it really runs the gamut. I mean, there will be we'll be talking about horrifically violent material like beheading videos or images, um, you know, the recordings of the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. You know, that's absolutely some of the kind of content that that people are focused on in these conversations and. That alone is really controversial to talk about Like, what are the appropriate times to completely ban visibility of that content, and is it ever appropriate to allow visibility of that content for research purposes or historical documentation or educational purposes? You can move from those kind of very stark and and horrifying examples to things that are even easier to see, the kind of the fuzzy... (laughs) barriers and the, the the borderline nature of the content, things like recruitment attempts that are mostly discussions about, you know, how great life is when you join this terrorist organization, or for example, how people should come and join ISIS uh, and participate, you know, in their life and their, you know, their way of life, which yes, includes conducting terrorist attacks. There will be things that aren't overt incitement to terrorist activity, but are more kind of general exhortations to join in the ideology. And whether or not that should count as terrorist content uh, is a really big question. When we're talking about the GIF-CT and the sort of the way that it is centralizing some of this content regulation, it's important to understand, I think, a little bit about
2: hashes. Okay, so let's unpack that for our listeners a bit more then. How exactly does this database work? What is hashing? Sure. So one
0: of the kind of the key features of what the, the GIF-CT does is basically administer this hash sharing database. The the hash sharing database actually predates the GIF-CT by about six months, but it was started as this combined effort among, again, those same four founding companies, Microsoft, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, to share information with each other about material that they had found on their services that they thought represented kind of extreme uh, terrorist content. Various points they kind of described it as the worst of the worst, um, or excessively violent uh, and abhorrent material. The way they were sharing information about this was not to actually share the files directly with each other, the images or the videos, but instead to create a shared database of what are called hashes. Um, You might hear hashes referred to as digital fingerprints or kind of barcodes for, for images. When you hash an image, well, there are a couple of ways that you could go about doing it, but it's basically trying to run an algorithmic process on the image to generate a single single value that is associated with that image and that image alone and not any other image. Um, If you think about hashing in the the kind of the encryption context, cryptographic hashing, that's a kind of hashing that says, you know, if a single pixel of this image or a single bit of information in this file is changed, it will generate an entirely new hash. That's not super useful for this content matching kind of system, because it it makes it very easy to circumvent a a hash matching system if it's easy enough to generate a new hash when you just change a single pixel in the image. The kind of hashing that something like the the GIF-CT database employs um, is a more sophisticated form that puts the image or the video files through a series of sort of transformations essentially to kind of standardize them. So if you think about it, it could be something like taking an image, resizing it to a specific standardized size, then breaking it up into a grid so that you have a kind of a consistent quadrant let's pretend five by five, you know, so you have a very standardized way of assessing an image and then doing something like calculating a histogram of the different kind of color values in the pixels uh, in the particular grid square. And then from that, generating this, this fingerprint, doing those kinds of transformations to the image makes the hash more robust, because it is, it's essentially a way to sort of filter out some of the non-material variation in the image and get to what is more a an assessment of kind of what is core to the image, the shapes involved, the light and dark patterns, you know, the, the essential sort of distribution of color and shape in the image that is a way of thinking about what is actually in this image. When you end up with this hash, then what you can do is every time someone tries to upload a new file to your service, you run that same hashing algorithm on the new file and see if you generate a matching hash. If you do, you think, okay, I I probably have something that matches an image I've already seen. And in this case, it's an image that I probably want to block.
2: So that's super useful and detailed. Um, Let's make it really concrete then uh, for our listeners. You mentioned earlier the, the Christchurch massacre uh, video where a gunman in New Zealand broadcast his shootings at two mosques as he murdered 51 people. And that was sort of a, a big moment for the GIF-CT. A bunch of governments and companies came together afterwards to issue something called the Christchurch call to to come together and try and stop the viral spread of something like that happening again. And that's sort of, I guess, the the quintessential use case for something like the GIF-CT. CT and hashing because in the aftermath of that massacre, there were lots of bad actors working together to try and get more copies of the video uploaded by making these slight alterations, like you were saying, to avoid the the direct matches. And that's obviously like quite a difficult technical problem and something that involves quite a lot of resources. And I guess the idea, the argument, uh, to cast this in the best light again, um, is that you know we have these mega platforms that have all of these resources and this technology, and it's good for them to share it with smaller platforms that basically wouldn't be able to combat that kind of uh, adversarial activity without their help. Are you comfortable with it in that kind of use case or what is it about something like that that makes uh, you still concerned if not
0: yeah yeah no that's a that's a really good question um and I think a lot of it has to do with what are the procedures and structures around something like a shared hash database and also you know how well does this concept of hash matching match up with the the content moderation goal it's being used for so on the on that latter point first one of the big issues with taking this kind of matching approach to to identifying problematic content and removing it is it happens without regard to context at the very least for for actually identifying a matching file there there's no contextual assessment the the whole process is calculating a hash of file and seeing if it matches something you've previously identified as wanting to block or at least wanting to flag for review and decide whether it should be blocked one other area where hash matching is is used fairly prominently is in the detection and blocking of child sexual abuse material or Csam and it's an interesting I bring it up because it's kind of an interesting comparison between Csam which has much more of a Essentially, a global consensus around the definition of at least a core part of what amounts to CSAM—prepubescent children being sexually abused—is not acceptable in any country in the world, uh, and is illegal content, kind of in all context, no matter context. There's no sort of exculpatory use of that kind of material for educational or artistic or other kinds of purposes. When you use a matching tool in that sort of circumstance, it's in a sense a little bit easier because you are dealing with content that you do not think should appear in any circumstance under any kind of context. For a lot of kind, things that might be deemed terrorist or violent extremist content, there very well may be contexts where it's entirely appropriate for it to be posted or archived or stored in some way. Um, and so just Indicating that there's a match isn't necessarily an indication that something should something else should happen to this content. It should be blocked, it should be put behind a warning, or anything else like that. That gets us into what are the procedures around using a hash database like this? Are there safeguards to account for the fact that, you know, in some emergency circumstances, like around the the shootings in Christchurch, you know, a Many companies were making the decisions, many news organizations were making the decisions, we don't want to show any bit of this content whatsoever, we want to block it. Not all news organizations, there were some that, that did post the video and that caused its own kind of set of discussions and controversies, but in especially in the moment, there was very much the sense that people want to block this content and didn't think there was any context in which it was acceptable. I think it is an interesting question to ask, you know, now, over a year after the incident, are there still no contexts in which anyone having a copy of that material is acceptable? Again, for think about historical purposes, archiving purposes, research purposes. One of the really important things to understand about that emergency circumstance around the Christchurch shooting, uh, though, was that some of the companies involved in the Gift CT were actually themselves, so these are very big companies like YouTube and Facebook, were so overwhelmed with the sheer volume of content that they were identifying through hash matching and, and other methods in their content moderation systems, that they actually had to turn off some of their own safeguards for using things like that, the hash database. Um, so for example, YouTube had stated publicly that in the immediate aftermath they were getting so many hits of reports of this video a minute that they actually turned off their internal procedures for doing human review of things that were being automatically flagged to them which is a good safeguard to have in place in general right if you have an automated system flagging content it's Typically, best practice for that to go to a person to review because there are any number of inaccuracies or errors that the automated system might make that a human could catch. But YouTube, you know, big, rich YouTube with lots of resources and lots of technical sophistication, was so overwhelmed in the moment that they had to turn off that safeguard, just kind of do an automated response to flags of this video um, because they're. They simply didn't have the capacity and couldn't keep up with the kind of ever-growing queue of things to review by running it through their human moderators as well. Um, So that's, you know, that's something when we think about kind of how this technology can be used, there are going to be circumstances where it seems like it makes a lot of sense to use it, but there are also going to be circumstances, sometimes the very same ones that show either the real limits of the technology or the ways that it can totally swamp whatever safeguards that you might think about putting in place.
2: So do we actually know what those safeguards are? Like, do we know precisely how the database works? If, For example, if YouTube uploads a particular hash to the database, does that automatically take that, if that gets uploaded to any other platform, down across all of the member companies or is there some sort of safeguard in place?
0: Yeah, so no, it does not, although there's maybe a question about that too. But the, the stated policy for GIF CT um, and for companies who participate in the hash sharing is that every company continues to apply their own terms of service to the content that they host. Um, so they can use the hash database to help flag material to review, but that material then should be assessed under each company's own policy to see if it. Accords with their own assessment of what is inappropriate terrorist content on their services. Um, So there's not a mandate in the process by any means. Um, There's in fact, they're, they're pretty, the companies are pretty intense about always clarifying that each company's own terms of service applies to any of these decisions. But they also talk a lot about how important it is to make this tool available for small companies that are under-resourced. And I think there is a real tension between those two ideas. If you have a small company that is under-resourced, say, for example, it only has a couple of staff members and you know they, they speak two or three languages between them and it doesn't cover every language in the world, and then content gets flagged up through this hash database that is in a language that none of your staffers speak. The ability for those staff to say, okay, we'll sit down and we'll do our own analysis and we'll apply our company's terms of service to this content. They might do it, but in practice, the chance that that flag turns into basically an automated takedown seems pretty high. Unfortunately, I have to say things like, we think, or it seems, because we just don't have that much transparency about what is going on with the hash database, in particular, how different companies kind of implement it in their own content moderation systems.
1: So the GIF-CT is currently undergoing a transition to becoming a sort of full-fledged, independent organization. Can you talk a little bit about what that process involves and, and whether it addresses the concerns that you've laid out?
0: Sure. Yeah. So... As I said earlier, GifCT sort of started as this you know industry led initiative. It wasn't exactly clear what it, it wasn't an independent organization, but it was sort of an umbrella under which they were doing work coordinating with each other and then with a kind of slowly growing group of other technology companies that were also facing different issues around terrorist abuse of their services. They After the, as Evelyn was mentioning, after the shootings in Christchurch, um, there was a lot of scrutiny on these companies and the gift CT. There was a lot of pressure, including through the Christchurch call process um, led by the New Zealand government to make the gift CT kind of, quote unquote, mean more, um, to do more and to be more of a formal entity. Um, So what that ended up translating into was by September of 2019, around the UN General Assembly meetings in New York, there was a kind of an announcement and a launch of the, you know, the process by which they were going to formalize the GIF-CT. It would become an independent legal entity. Uh, I think it's incorporated as a nonprofit, I believe, in the state of Delaware. And it was going to have uh, both an operating board made up of the kind of the core member companies and some of the other company members of GifCT, ct and also an independent advisory committee that was going to be populated by both government and some civil society or academia or kind of non-governmental and non-company representatives. Um, so this was a, a big change for GifCT ct and was sort of presented to civil society and to the rest of the world kind of in its, its final form of this is the structure, the companies and some governments together had decided this is what formalizing the GIF-CT is going to look like. Um, there wasn't like an open consultation on what the structure of the GIF-CT should look like or, or anything like that. Instead, it was launched at an event that included a panel entirely of government or intergovernmental uh, speakers presenting this new structure where each of them would have a seat on this advisory committee. So over the past year, the Gift ct has worked on kind of implementing that, that vision. They are a legal entity now. They have a, um, a new executive director. Uh, they have this independent advisory committee. There's still not a ton of transparency <laughs> about what's going on with the initiative. Um, and CDT actually worked with a, a coalition of human rights organizations from around the world to write out a variety of recommendations to the GIF-CT about things that we think really need to be put in place in this new structure to avoid it being totally co-opted by governments or totally vulnerable to scope creep and mission creep, Um, you know, from terrorist content when it launched now to terrorist and violent extremist content, potentially in the future to other kinds of content as well. Um, You know, I think there's still a lot of, questions and, on my part, concerns about what this organization is going to turn into. And unfortunately, not a ton that has been put in place yet to really meaningfully push back against all of those, those forces and pressures on GIF-CT to continue sort of expanding its scope and operation.
2: Yeah, great. So let's pick up on that last point then about sort of spreading to other types of content because we are uh, notionally a podcast about disinformation uh, and we have now just spent half an hour talking about terrorist content uh, <laughs> and our listeners might be going, you know, this is not what I signed up for on my Thursday morning. I, I think it's important to underline, like I've, I've talked about this, I think it's one of the most important things to watch for the future of online speech governance, this process that it's undergoing at the moment uh, and trying to get this transition uh, to an independent organization right for exactly that reason. You mentioned how this kind of technology spread originally from child sexual abuse material, um, which is sort of a much more uh, confined uh, area of content to now this broader terrorist content to then like glorification of terrorism. And I sort of have observed or um, think that there's sort of pushes to spread it even further to things like disinformation. And we have spoken a lot in this podcast about, you know, if terrorist content is hard to define, disinformation is really hard to define. Do you agree that there's sort of that pressure and and sort of people looking towards that to to sort of think about spreading it further? And, um, you know, what would you think about that kind of model in in the area of disinformation? (laughs) I like it even less than
0: in uh in terrorist and violent extremist content. Um no, yeah, I think there I think there is something of that pressure although right now, you know, as you were mentioning earlier Evelyn, this is flying somewhat under the radar for the kind of much bigger conversations about content moderation and content regulation. I do remember though in, you know, in April of this year as everyone was sort of Adjusting to working from home and being in various amounts of lockdown and quarantine, and and everyone was talking about COVID all the time. Um, definitely hearing ideas floated by at least a couple of policymakers about, well, don't we need some sort of you know shared database of COVID misinformation? At least, can't we all agree that needs to get locked down, suppressed, you know, cleared off of all of these different platforms because it's such an obvious public health risk. You know, I think the risks of centralized censorship or centralized decision making about what content is allowed to appear on major services is really risky in the terrorist context and even more so when we're talking about disinformation and maybe even more so when we're talking about confusing information about a novel virus that is continuing to be studied and and learned about over the course of weeks and months. Um, Actually pinning down what counts as something that is so, in the disinformation context, like so inaccurate or so kind of intentionally mischaracterized that it should not appear anywhere or that every site should treat that information the same. I think at the very least it would be an extremely small category of content that could possibly merit that treatment. And likely you would end up with many, many, many more questions and concerns and call them mistakes or call them overbroad application of that kind of tool than you would actually really useful contribution to content moderation.
1: So we wanna take a, a little bit of a turn here and address a a different source of disinformation, one might say, um, that would namely the president. Uh so CDT um is suing Trump over the executive order he issued in May uh that came out shortly after Twitter applied its first uh, label to a presidential tweet that contained dis or misinformation. Um so I want to give our listeners a an over give you a chance to give our listeners an, an overview of the lawsuit but before we do that would you be able to just sort of lay out like what does the executive order purport to do and as part of that how it purports to address section 230 uh, cuz I think 230 is often a source of confusion
0: Uh yes I I definitely agree with that and I think that's also very apparent in the the executive order that was issued in May. Um, So its full name is the executive order on preventing online censorship. Um, And as you mentioned, it was issued right after Twitter in particular took action uh, to add additional information alongside um, some tweets of the president's. From CDT's perspective, this order is clearly an attempt to coerce social media companies into changing how they moderate content, the president's speech in particular, but content in general, so that it is more in line with what the president wants as opposed to what those services might otherwise choose to do. So what the the executive order does, it it has a lot of discussion about how it is trying to prevent censorship, um, but it's really taking up this narrative of social media companies treating especially the president's speech uh, unfavorably or unfairly. What it does as a matter of proposals of policy is to launch a couple of different kinds of attacks at how social media companies do content moderation. Um, it instructs the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the NTIA to which is part of the Department of Commerce to send a petition to the FCC asking them to, essentially rewrite and reinterpret uh, Section 230 um, in a way that the FCC doesn't really actually have any authority to do and no specific role in the statute to provide that kind of rulemaking. But nevertheless, the EO says that NTIA should petition the FCC to do a rulemaking on Section 230, basically to constrain the kinds of protections it gives social media companies for moderating user content and especially for editing or commenting upon. User content. It also looks to uh, it requires federal agencies to um, do an assessment of the advertising budgets that they spend on different kinds of social media services, uh, and to do that in the context of assessing sort of the the fairness or equity of those companies' content moderation policies. This is kind of in part an attempt to uh, withhold federal ad spending dollars from different services if they don't do content moderation the way the president thinks is appropriate. The executive order also instructs the attorney general to work with state attorneys general to look at what kind of prosecutions state attorneys general could bring against social media companies. And all of this kind of together is part of the executive order's kind of clear effort to cloud the existing liability framework that social media companies are built upon, and to make them very uh, wary of doing content moderation in a way that the president disagrees with.
1: And so what's the basis of your challenge then?
0: Right. So our lawsuit is challenging the executive order as a whole. Basically, as there are many different pieces to, to the EO, and they have their own kind of Weaknesses, constitutional and legal weaknesses to them. But we're really looking at the executive order in its entirety as an effort by the president to threaten and retaliate against and coerce um, social media services. And in doing so, to basically deprive people of access to online services that are, you know, moderating content as they see fit and, and really leave everybody only with the option of services that are kowtowing to the the president's threats.
1: So one of the things I find interesting about the lawsuit is, frankly, the the fact that it exists at all. (laughs) Um, Because from the beginning, as you say, it's really unclear whether the executive order is going to have any effect. Uh, Section 230 is a congressional statute. The order seems to assume that there's some kind of authority on the part of the FCC to effectively amend the statute, which just seems like a category error it's not even clear that the FCC is going to do anything. So what what was your all thinking in terms of why this lawsuit would be a good move to file rather than just sort of sitting and waiting it out? Because, you know, let's say the that there's a Biden administration, I'm assuming that they probably would not keep this executive order on the books.
0: I mean, it's, in large part because of the retaliatory nature of the executive order and the way that that retaliation is intended right now to coerce changes in content moderation from social media platforms and to affect what speech and what information people in the U.S. and around the world, frankly, have access to. You know, it, it, I don't think it was any mistake that this EO came after Twitter provided a link to, it didn't, it wasn't even a, Example of content moderation that took down the president's tweets, they merely appended accurate information about the integrity of mail-in voting to one of the president, or several of the president's tweets that were spreading inaccurate information about uh, mail-in voting and kind of the integrity of the US election. That is happening right now. Those, and we've seen over the course of the summer, many more kind of back and forth interactions between the president and a variety of social media platforms all of this kind, and that this is part of the kind of what's core to First Amendment cases around coercion, intimidation, and especially trying to do that through intermediaries. The potential chilling effect that those kinds of threats can have are harms that are happening now. They are not harms that depend on the FCC to ultimately promulgate rules. There's a whole other set of harms to be addressed there, but. The president, through this executive order, we are saying in our lawsuit, is is trying to use the full force of his power, issuing executive orders, threatening all of these different kinds of agency actions to, in this moment, coerce action and censor speech on these platforms. That itself is a harm. That is what we want the the court to, to look at and to stop that kind of threatening and coercion, especially as we are leading into one of the most contested and uh, contentious elections that the the United States has seen in quite some time, you know, having this sort of threat of using everything the president has in his power against these these social media platforms and against people's speech, hanging over all of that is distorting, is already distorting our access to information.
2: So It sounds like you're on the side of the platforms now, then. Is that right? I'm just curious. A lot of your work, I think, has focused on the way that platforms moderate. And a lot of the first half of this conversation was talking about uh, a lot of the ways in which they are unaccountable. How do you sort of walk that tension between um, here standing up for their rights not to be intimidated, but also still trying to hold them accountable for what they do?
0: Right. I mean, I see it as... Two sides of the same coin. Well, ultimately, what I am working for is for people to have the widest array of choice of access to platforms um, for their own speech, access to information, uh, the most information that they can get to be informed users of these different services. You know, I think obviously, content moderation plays a huge role in shaping people's experiences online. We need to hold companies accountable for how, for this kind of enormous power that they are using (laughs) to every day to shape who gets to speak, what information is available. And in fact, the positive things that they do to, to make access to information possible and to make, you know, formation of communities and exchange of ideas online possible. So we need to keep a very close eye on what companies are doing. Absolutely. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that government censorship is an extraordinarily powerful force as well. You know, I don't want to see social media companies or any other kind of online platform coerced by any government into changing how they do content moderation. Regulation that comes through a fair and open and democratic legal process is a different thing entirely than coercion, threats, and intimidation, where there's very little way to hold the government accountable for what it is doing and how it is affecting and restricting people's rights to access information and to speak online. You know, so so I don't see that much of a, a difference between them um, because the the work that we do fighting to keep government censorship in check, you know, might be beneficial to social media companies, but it's not on their behalf in any way.
2: So one other thing that I'm curious about to go back to sort of the arc of your time in the role that you've you've had is you know you talked a lot or you talked at the beginning about how there's a lot more public uh, awareness about these issues now. And I think uh, we've also sort of teased out how we had this uh, idealistic notion at the beginning of the internet and platform era of like decentralization and information wants to be free. And there's sort of been a turn against that and a a call for sort of more gatekeeping and removal of harmful content. And I'm wondering whether as a civil society organization working on freedom of expression, uh, how you have found yourself positioned... As opposed to, or uh, uh, with public opinion over the course of the past sort of decade, have you noticed a, a marked shift in sort of what people want from the internet over that time?
0: Yeah, no, that is, that is a great question. I mean, to me, it's I, I feel like there have been, you know, it's it's almost punctuated equilibrium. You know, there have been different phases along in the past. 10 years or 20 years of technology policy, where sort of there was a, a big expansion in just how many people were paying attention to these kinds of issues. You know, I can think about in the internet governance space, there was a, a lot of focus all, all of a sudden on the ITU in 2012, and what was going to happen with kind of global governments potentially regulating the internet. And that seemed to, from my, you know, again, from my limited view, expand a lot of who was paying attention to these issues. We had um, various copyright fights over the years, including SOPA PIPA, that really sort of got a a much bigger contingent of internet users focused on what is Congress doing um, or potentially doing to the internet. There was, in the terrorist content area, I personally noticed a lot of change in the public policy discussions around this after the Charlie Hebdo shootings in France. That was a point at which the European Union to me seem to take a much bigger focus and make that kind of connection between what things that are happening online are having really serious real world impacts that governments look at and want to address and then of course in the US the maybe the US was a little bit late to the game but in 2016 the presidential election seemed to be another moment where a lot of people in this country were like wait a minute hold up i feel like I don't know what's going on in my country anymore. And I think the internet had a lot to do with that. There's a lot to unpack in that process of people maybe coming to some sudden realization and how, how much should they have seen things developing over time, how far back trends of polarization in this country go, you know, to well before the internet and all of that. But it certainly changed the public conversation. And especially then when the Cambridge Analytica whole saga was unfolding, brought a new attention to data protection and data usage. So for me, especially over the past couple of years, it seemed to be a kind of exponential increase of amount of attention, amount of focus. And then for all of the different political factors that are driving the tech lash, um, you know, complicated things much beyond issues of privacy and free expression online, there's a ton of scrutiny now, right? So so I think there's probably a difference among people in general about how much they th- Think about the internet and think about their own use of the internet and how it's affecting them and what they want out of it. But then there's also, I think, a a very different role that the internet and tech companies are playing in geopolitics, including in how governments are interacting with each other um, and, and sort of what tech and tech policy is serving as a kind of a basis for other kinds of political maneuverings or discussions you know, amongst different countries and, and different world powers. But on the, the question about like kind of what people want from the internet, it's also been something I've been fascinated as you know, someone from the U.S. with a U.S. law school education to see, again, from my perspective, what has been a development among people in the U.S. of actually a much more kind of, at least in some, some categories, a much more European way of thinking about free expression than you necessarily find in first amendment doctrine. So I'm sure you don't have to go into too much detail for listeners of this podcast, but right. The, the first amendment, puts a very high bar to government uh, regulation of speech. It's kind of a, a negative rights Congress shall make no law sort of approach to protecting free speech. Doesn't do a lot in the area of positive obligation of government to Create the opportunities for free expression. And it means things like the United States doesn't have, in general, laws against hate speech because they are seen as incompatible with the First Amendment. But you talk to a lot of people in the United States today about what they want out of social media, and they absolutely want social media to be regulating hate speech. They absolutely want kind of the spaces where they are doing a lot of their expressive activity to have much more of that kind of, I'm saying European, but it's sort of a international human rights kind of approach of thinking of creating an enabling environment. I don't just want, you know, a set of extreme kinds of speech that are disallowed. I actually want things to be done to this space to make it more possible for me to participate, whether that's addressing hate speech or addressing harassment. So uh, to me, that's been a really interesting subtle dynamic going on in the public conversations around speech, where people are really asking for a lot of things that require a more involved role in this case of tech companies, not necessarily of governments, but a more involved role in how the speech environment is being regulated on a particular service so that they can get the kind of positive outcome that they're looking for, which I think people would still frame in in the language of free expression of I want a place to speak, I want to be able to access information that I can rely on or that I can trust, and recognizing that that might actually require positive action from the, in this case, the the service, the platform, not just kind of a a minimalist, take down scarce categories of content
1: approach. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.